On this season, we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria, how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society, and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. The articles claimed that when Herschel pointed the telescope at the moon, he saw a beautiful, colorful world. No, not you. Your organization's terrible. Your organization's terrible. Let's go. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Go ahead. Banking Insider exposes COVID-19's role in Mark of the Beast rollout. Bombshell. Hillary Clinton's satanic network exposed. FBI agents suspected in Hillary email leaks found dead in apparent murder-suicide. Barack Obama's allegiance is to the New World Order and Satan. Ted Cruz's father linked to JFK assassination. Saddam and Osama's gay wedding. Space aliens eating Alabama babies. Pedophiles want to rule you, freaky. The satanic left wants our president to die. BLM's spiritual battle. Masks are witchcraft to hide Christian faces from God. Alien in slammer after fistfight with Bill. Over Hillary. That was all a cocktail of headlines from our conspiracy industrial complex. Fox News, Breitbart, Infowars, The National Enquirer, and also its satirical counterpart, The Weekly World News. Some of these outlets claim to reveal the repressed truths in political news, and others are more lighthearted or sardonic jabs at the gullibility of Americans. But here in the smoky fever dream of 2020, can you even tell the difference anymore? Fake news was the unofficial top buzzword of 2016, and in fact, it was Collins Dictionary term of the year in 2017, as false stories spread like wildfire across tabloids, TV news, with fringe online talking heads, message boards, social media. It all traveled prolifically, fueled in large part by the Trump administration, who used this opportunity to begin constructing an entire alternate reality. Some of what we're talking about today are early American hoaxes that duped the public in fanciful ways, like the early reports of giants found hidden underground and bat people living on the moon. Stories that in retrospect read like the headlines of the meta-tabloid The Weekly World News, alongside alien politician love affairs. But we'll also see how this model of sensational stories quickly took off with the penny press, a flashy and smoldering rebuttal to the boring liberal elitism of outlets like the New York Times, and a far more lucrative one as well. We'll look at the history of disinformation and atrocity propaganda, and how its sinister world has found its modern voice, leveraged through politicians and the media, hitting at the most reactionary of our emotions with the most bloodthirsty of villains. We know that our society is drawn to capital letters telling us what to be afraid of, what current cultural phantom to fear. 
Our legacy is that of grinning fantastical thinkers and frothing doomsayers. And it's all in the name of the truth. Way back in August of 1835, a fledgling daily paper called the New York Sun was making waves as one of America's first penny papers, covering stories of public interest rather than the boring financial and political reports of the day. These papers, like the New York Times, were too expensive for the working class to afford and often contained content that just didn't relate to their lives. And so the penny press filled the gap, focusing instead on entertainment and leaving the political humdrum out of it. True crime proved a popular topic, of course, but soon editors realized that other kinds of stories sold just as well, the kind of stories that seemed to pique our interest in a similar vein to murder. Stories of the strange and unusual, the paranormal, freak oddities like P.T. Barnum used to display, sheep with three eyes and snakes with two heads. But the Sun gained its first real burst of notoriety when the paper published a six-part series called Celestial Discoveries that would come to be known as the Great Moon Hoax. The articles alleged, in a serious scientific manner, that the moon was teeming with advanced life and offered drawings of what had apparently been discovered by the famous astronomer Sir John Herschel with a completely made-up telescope of unimaginable power. And allegedly, and we must include this, as the creation was completed, a scientist reportedly said to Herschel, Thou art the man! Over a period of six days, conveniently following America's first sighting of Halley's Comet, they rolled the story out in a sensational fashion to a wild buzz, with newsboys hollering cinematically on the street corners about this revolutionary discovery. It went like this. The moon was not the lonely hanging rock that America knew, but instead it was full of familiar sights, rivers, lakes, even oceans with sandy beaches, huge temples of beautiful blue stone with golden roofs, even one that was abandoned and perpetually surrounded by flames with a scattering of familiar looking pyramids. And then there was the wildlife, Miniature zebras and bison, beavers that walked like people and made huts and were able to build fires, and even large blue goat-like unicorns. The advanced beings of the moon were referred to as man-bats and were just that, a hybrid of a man and a bat, mostly like real hard-bodied, hairy men with bat wings. And these creatures mated publicly without modesty and appeared to be conscious and sentient and also vegetarians. After the first installment, the sun's readership increased two and a half fold and would become the most widely read in the entire world. And this wasn't just a fun paranormal rabbit hole for a handful of people to go down for an afternoon. Though it's difficult to ascertain the scope of the belief in this goofy tale, there is evidence to suggest that a truly notable number of readers took it to be true. In Kurt Anderson's book, Fantasyland, he quotes an editor, perhaps speaking a little hyperbolically, of a different local newspaper. 
all New York rang with the wonderful discoveries, to express a doubt on the genuineness of the great lunar discoveries was considered almost as heinous a sin as to question the truth of revelation. In classic fashion, the next step was the grand expose, the fraud revealed. At the time, the Sun's greatest competitor was James Gordon Bennett's New York Herald, a publication that would have likely been able to skewer the moon story faster had its offices not burned to the ground the very week of the story's premiere. But by the end of the month, the Herald found the vital comeback it needed in a lengthy article titled The Astronomical Hoax Explained, in which the Sun editor, Richard Adams Locke, one of the industry's first beat crime journalists, was revealed as the author and called out for creating a hysteria with his fake news. There would be reports years later that Locke was actually a satirist who was basically making fun of some of the loonier scientific assertions of the day, especially those made by the man he called the Christian philosopher, who claimed that there were billions of inhabitants living on the moon. There were people out there talking seriously on the matter of moon people, and then there were the people making fun of that as well. And it reminds me of a Puritan story that also made a serious splash in the boredom of colonial America. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. In 1705, in a small town in New York called Claverack that was set along the Hudson River, the story goes like this. On a leisurely stroll, a Dutch farmer felt something like a rock knock against his boot, something that had been rolling down the hill beside him. And when he picked it up to examine it, he was flabbergasted to realize he was holding a tooth the size of his fist. But without hesitation, he traded the tooth to a local politician for a glass of rum straight up. The tooth was then gifted to Lord Cornbury, the quirky and flamboyant governor of the state, who made a big old to-do about it all, and through digging in the area, more huge bones would be discovered. But without even the notion that the earth could have been more than 6,000 God-fearing years old, they wouldn't have guessed that it was actually an extinct species. Well, at least not a biological one. Perhaps out of an actual belief, and perhaps out of a beneficial political agenda or both, Lord Cornbury wrote on a slip of paper, Tooth of a Giant, just below the passage of Genesis that stated, approximately, there were giants in the earth in the days before the flood. At the time, it was a serious flex against their British rivals that America would be the true home of these biblical beefcakes. Oh, and here he comes. Watch out. You think he wouldn't slime in for a piece of the action? That's right. Puritan minister and witch trial bitch Cotton Mather was there to pridefully boast about the bones and said that compared to the American supergiants, European giants must hardly be so much as pygmies. 
But then the more liberal side of the spectrum got in on that fake news action 150 years later, as the popular myth was still hanging around, despite scientific refutations, with one atheist all puffed up about these ridiculous claims. After getting in a yelling fight with a reverend, George Hull thought it was time to punk the delusional revivalists as he sat, quote, wondering why people would believe those remarkable stories in the Bible about giants when suddenly I thought of making a stone giant and passing it off as a petrified man. The finished giant had been made from quarry rock, allegedly for a statue of Lincoln, and Hull hired a stonecutter to sculpt a 3,000-pound hoax, spending the equivalent of $50,000, and then he buried it in Cardiff, New York, left it there for a year for authenticity, and then hired people to discover it while digging a well. He swore them to secrecy. Thousands poured into Cardiff to get a glimpse of what the papers were calling a new wonder. After making some cash on tickets, Hull sold the giant and it went on the road with its new owner. But within a few months, people began realizing it was all fake, a hoax to expose the ridiculousness of the Christian version of science and also to make a bunch of cash at the same time. P.T. Barnum would go on to copy the Cardiff giant, and it would influence his weekly world Newsian oddities as he spread similar stories all over the country, continuing to prop up the American idea that anything and everything is possible and often preferable to everyday life. In a world where anything is possible, it opens a dangerous space for far more concerted disinformation campaigns, ones not pushed by flim-flam artists out to make a buck, but those that are specifically created to inflame a different kind of emotion, a far less dreamy fantasy of moon paradises and self-important giant bones. This thing called atrocity propaganda is the blood of this kind of political disinformation. And this type of conspiracy can be found to motivate the public in support of war, whether literal or cultural. As an early example, Benjamin Franklin often used rhetoric as a means of swaying public opinion, and he went so far as to create a conspiracy of exaggerated, bloodthirsty bands of Seneca chiefs who were conspiring with British King George III, who was working to, quote, "...engage savages to murder defenseless farmers, women, and children." Now, it was true that some tribes had allied with the British during the Revolutionary War to fight against the colonists, but the extremely monstrous story that Franklin would spin was made in hopes to sway British popular opinion in favor of the peace treaties he hoped to finalize with America's former motherland. In 1782, he would write a supplement to the British Independent Chronicle, a fake letter supposedly written by a British agent named James Crawford, addressed to the governor of Canada with a little extra surprise gift of hundreds of Patriot scalps. Another made-up letter from another made-up guy from the New England militia added more authenticity. A man who allegedly stole that gift before it arrived to expose it all and described in detail the horrors he discovered. 
prisoners burnt alive after being scalped, their nails pulled out by the roots. Enclosed were 102 scalps of farmers, 88 scalps torn from women, 193 from boys, 211 from girls, and 29 infants that were, quote, ripped out of their mother's bellies. Thirty years later, the story found a second life when it was dug up and reproduced in papers all over the country during the War of 1812, when we were back at it with the British again, and they were gaining ground with the help of various tribes. And the scalp present story reappeared as evidence of the salacious, bloody conspiracy against the good white rural patriots who were just trying to manifest their destiny. Approaching the turn of the 20th century with the constant popularity of true crime in mind, a serious sex and gore war was fought by two of the most famous American publishers of all time, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst, the pioneers of what would come to be called yellow journalism, an early relative of the tabloids. In 1884, Pulitzer purchased the New York World and then vastly increased its circulation, and the next year, Hearst would do the same with the New York Journal American, both penny papers that were available to the working class. Prior to the Spanish-American War of 1898, their papers wrote false stories of women strip-searched and sexually harassed and assaulted by Spanish officials within the boundaries of America. There were brutal executions and starving women and children. It became a well-known legend that Hearst's headlines sparked the Spanish-American War of 1898, but that's an exaggeration. However, the paper certainly had a serious effect on public perceptions, and with its aggressively patriotic tone, it got America to rally behind the flag again and again, to rally against that enemy from without, but also the enemy from within. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the show. By the early 1930s, Hearst was, to put it bluntly, a pre-Nazi or a fascist, one who would publish letters in his journal penned by Adolf Hitler, whom he repeatedly praised for his strong stance against communism, that specter of indoctrination and radicalization that was complete with the Jewish Illuminati conspiracies that Henry Ford was spreading through the hoax document, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now, we've talked about this document a lot, especially in our episode on the Illuminati, so please revisit that if you'd like to. This document acted as a kind of proof that there was a concerted Jewish effort to take over the world and that the arms of this evil cabal reached into all parts of our social structure, Hollywood, academia, the government, the media, you name it. He ramped up his frothing patriotism when he placed America first in all caps at the top of his newspaper above an eagle with a ribbon in his talons that read an American paper for the American people. All caps. Hearst published paranoid but familiar stories about communists controlling universities who were teaching alien doctrines and the communist radical influence on unionizing workers that would culminate in a very familiar kind of mass protest and a very familiar response to it. Here are the first pictures of strike-paralyzed San Francisco in the grip of a general labor tie-up. To the possibility of mob violence is added fear of pestilence. I must insist... First, that law and order shall prevail. Workers across racial lines would unite in a general strike in San Francisco in the summer of 1934. As Hearst whipped up panic about these alleged communist and anarchist insurrectionists through false conspiracy theories, a considerable number of patriots took it very seriously and came out and responded as vigilantes in tandem with the police setting fires and destroying property and beating up tradesmen, whether they were protesters or not. Dozens were arrested during the riots, but none of them were the vigilantes who were out beating up innocent citizens. What did Hearst print the next day? Can you guess? Quote, Thank God the patriotic citizens of California have shown us the way. The New York Times had been around several decades longer, but was beaten out by the New York world, in large part because what they were doing was boring compared to the flashier, scarier counterparts. As mentioned, the New York Times and others like the Washington Post were more expensive than the yellow penny papers, seen as elitist and cosmopolitan, and thus could not be trusted by the little guy. During the Nixon era, the specter of communism was alive and well in universities and Hollywood and especially the TV media as live news reports helped sway public opinion in favor of integration and civil rights and against the war in Vietnam. 
In response, Nixon began popularizing the Hearst model, this thing called liberal media bias, employing the rhetoric that we know so well today to discredit truthful reporting, claiming that any and all news that did not fall favorably upon the administration or their policies was fake news, a conspiracy against the president. We can follow the popularity of yellow journalism up through to Generoso Pope Jr., the son of an Italian immigrant turned successful newspaper mogul who had a vision for the future of a newspaper he would purchase called the National Enquirer, by most accounts with mafia money. Passing a car accident, Gene, as he was known, witnessed drivers and passengers rubbernecking to catch a glimpse of the possible gore. Making deals with police, he got dibs on car accident photos and crime scenes, landing his publication squarely in the category of trashy exploitation, along with headlines like, Mom Boiled Her Baby and Ate Her. For a while, this classic true crime style worked, but eventually the readership would start to level out and Gene realized that he needed more eyes on his paper. He needed to bring it out of the dark and into the hands of the mainstream, targeting an archetype he created called Missy Smith in Kansas City, a typical 1960s housewife hungry for celebrity gossip and sensational stories, but without that gore that kept the Inquirer away from the innocence of the checkout line. And so, the National Enquirer, keeping with tradition, would fall back on paranormal stories of aliens, psychics, and medical oddities. Finally, he would land his newspaper in that coveted spot, placed in the checkout line at almost every major grocery store, where it remains to this day. By the 1970s, at least 4.5 million people were subscribed to the National Enquirer, far more than those subscribed to the New York Times. But when we fast forward 20 years, we see a very different kind of National Enquirer emerge as the paranormal was rehomed to the satirical and ridiculous Weekly World News, which Gene Pope simply created because he wanted to figure out what to do with his old black and white printer. Celebrity gossip would take over most of the pages of the National Enquirer through the 80s and 90s until a new editor came on the scene in 1999. David Pecker... (laughs) was a wannabe celebrity and owner of another popular tabloid called Star, and had also published a magazine that was distributed at all of Donald Trump's properties called, I kid you not, Trump Style, with headlines like, 40 and fabulous. A weekend at Trump Taj Mahal can't help but be an exhilarating exercise in glamour and fun. Before Pecker, Trump was a favorite headline for the National Enquirer, with his affairs proving to be rich fodder. But when Pecker arrived on the scene a decade later, an agreement was made that he would only print positive stories about Donald and negative ones about his enemies. In fact, Trump sometimes hid behind fake identities he created in order to feed stories to the National Enquirer that he wanted to be printed. 2015 featured headlines like Donald Trump's revenge on Hillary and her puppets. Sociopath Hillary Clinton's secret psych files exposed. Hillary, corrupt, racist, criminal. 
However, mysteriously missing from the papers were negative stories about any one of Trump's many salacious controversies that would have fit perfectly within the pages. Pecker also famously buried a story about Trump's affair with model Karen McDougal, paying her $150,000 to keep quiet. When Marco Rubio was the frontrunner for the Republican nomination, the National Enquirer put out a story that all but said he worked as a gigolo in Miami. In a story more aligned with the Weekly World News, the National Enquirer also ran the headline, Ted Cruz's father linked to JFK assassination. And then Trump, live on Fox News, repeated the completely fabricated story after calling into his favorite show, Fox and Friends, to make them aware of this bombshell report. All I did is point out the fact that on the cover of the National Enquirer, there was a picture of him and crazy Lee Harvey Oswald having breakfast. Of course, as the National Enquirer was becoming the most American possible propaganda machine, most people were getting their disinformation from Facebook friends or Fox News, with the Enquirer's sales down 90% since 1970. However, the more important thing is that millions and millions of people pass through those checkout lines every day and see those headlines, just the evocative block letters of some of the most shocking political news, and the damage is done. Because of this, former Trump campaign advisor Sam Nunberg said that the National Enquirer was even more valuable than a campaign mailer. At the same time, Fox News was reaching more people than any other television news network by a serious margin, making almost $2 billion a year. Enter American Hysteria Royalty, Alex Jones, of the leading conspiracy disinformation site InfoWars. And let's also welcome Alex Jones Light, the allegedly handsome Tucker Carlson of Fox News. During litigation, both men have copped up to their myriad of dangerous lies to be, well, theater. We've talked about Alex Jones many times before. He's most famous for calling the Sandy Hook shooting a false flag, but he's also responsible for repopularizing the foundation that would become QAnon, which we'll talk about soon. When he wasn't ripping off his shirt in a display of anger against the liberal elite, Alex Jones liked to call up his friend Trump on the phone. He'd become a kind of advisor to Trump after he appeared on InfoWars in 2015. I just want to finish by saying your reputation's amazing. I will not let you down. You will be very, very uh, impressed, I hope. And I think we'll be speaking a lot. Well, I'm impressed. I mean, you're saying you're fully committed. You know, there's no future if we don't take this country back. Donald Trump, I hope you can help uncripple America. Thank you so much, sir. This interview was a huge deal for Alex Jones's show. And in fact, on the night of the election, InfoWars would receive similar viewership to the major media outlets. But it's important to note that eventually Alex and Donald had a little falling out after Alex said Trump wasn't returning his calls anymore. Hey, we've all been there. When Jones's custody battle became public with his former wife, she claimed he was, surprisingly, an unfit and unstable parent and used Infowars as an example of his personality. However, his attorney would claim that his client was simply, quote, playing a character. He is a performance artist. However, that night Jones put out a video on Infowars calling his own lawyer's statement fake news, quote, 
They've got articles out today saying that I'm fake and all this other crap. Total bull. The media is deceiving everywhere. I 110% believe everything that I stand for. Thanks, I wanted to do that one myself. Another suit would be brought against Alex Jones by a parent who had experienced extreme harassment after he called him a paid actor faking the death of his little boy during the Sandy Hook shooting. During his testimony, Alex Jones claimed he entered periods of psychosis, and that could be blamed for him creating some of his wilder theories, like the idea that Sandy Hook was a hoax. As for Tucker Carlson, he was sued for slander by Karen McDougal, a.k.a. the woman whose story the National Enquirer famously buried. This judge ruled in favor of old Tuck, agreeing with his lawyer's assertions that Fox News is obviously not a factual show, stating that the, quote, general tenor of it reasonably informs the viewer that it is, quote, non-literal commentary, exaggeration, and not actual facts. These admitted con men have had unprecedented access to Donald Trump and have actively guided the inflammatory conspiratorial rhetoric of his administration. Their ilk has even landed in the highest levels of government as Steve Bannon became the chief executive officer of Trump's 2016 campaign and then chief strategist after the election. Bannon was the former editor of Breitbart News, which was, at the time of Trump's election, the most widely read conservative site in America, which, in exchange for fawning coverage and disgruntled responses to criticism, Trump granted exclusive interviews leading up to the election, increasing their traffic 124 percent, while they in turn helped Trump's campaign with the same old stories of liberal establishment bias. As we know, even Russian troll farms and even frickin' robots tweeted out outrage porn and struck it rich, even possibly influencing our 2016 election with inflammatory rhetoric. The conspiracy industrial complex is currently thriving beyond its wildest dreams and my wildest nightmares. But just like in the past, satire has played its own role in the spread of alternative facts. NPR did an investigation into one of the biggest producers of disinformation said to possibly help influence the 2016 election, starting with one story, one very important story, that was shared by over 500,000 people. Quote, FBI agent suspected in Hillary email links found dead in apparent murder-suicide. Now, in Benjamin Franklin style, this story is totally false, right down to the local sheriff, the murdered FBI agent, and even the town itself. Regardless, over the next 10 days, the article would get 1.6 million views. The man responsible for this site, however, is no Alex Jones, no Steve Bannon, no David Pecker, but a man with a degree in political science who identifies as a liberal living in the suburbs of Los Angeles. He explained to NPR that he got into the business of fake news in 2013 when he identified a threat in the rising far-right movements, and he went on to create several sites that sound like reputable sources. NationalReport.net, USAToday.com.co, WashingtonPost.com.co, and DenverGuardian.com, 
with a team of 25 writers working under him, creating hundreds and hundreds of stories like this one. And by his own admission, he was making, personally, somewhere between ten dollars to $30,000 a month, and he is still at it. But it's not about the money, come on. It's always been about revealing the hypocrisy of the far right. But here's the problem. A lot of people didn't get the joke. The most comprehensive research on the spread of false news stories to date came out of MIT, which reported that disinformation was 70% more likely to be retweeted than fact-based stories, and that they also traveled six times faster, with stories targeting the right wing traveling farther and faster by a considerable margin. They also found that these stories specifically evoke our more reactive emotions, anger, outrage, shock, and the root of them all. All fear. Oh, okay. YouTube, Q's plan saved the world. It involves the whole Space Force, possible alien life, uh, like pedophiles, uh, you know, and it just seeks to tie all of that together. And I feel like, I mean, I know we've discussed it a lot of times, and we're like, well, I'm not really sure I believe that part of it, but yet I, it, it just, I don't think he's lying to us, whoever he is. An umbrella conspiracy known as QAnon has risen as a massive online movement based in perhaps the most extreme and bizarre disinformation that's ever directly influenced a presidential administration. With that magic mix of grotesque true crime, the strange and unusual paranormal and inflammatory nationalistic politics. It's the intoxicating combination that once made the tabloids a roaring success with people like old Missy Smith in Kansas City, while all the while paving a way for people like Alex Jones to trickle down to people like Tucker Carlson, paving the way for a president's megalomaniacal alternative reality to take over public consciousness. This apparent far-right intel is allegedly fed to the followers through a high-up government official going by Q, who has insight into and leaks documents about the secret war that Trump is waging, a global satanic pedophile ring run by Democrats and the Hollywood elite, along with anyone else that can be folded into this liberal agenda. All puppeted by an elite international Jewish cabal with the anti-Semitic hoax we mentioned, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, making its rounds yet again, revived just as Ben Franklin's debunked story of the atrocities of the scalp-hungry indigenous tribes proved useful decades later, despite being completely made up. We hear the same Hurstian language of monstrous, communist, anarchist enemies from within. The stories cast now with the new villains of today. More after this. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. 
The stories of QAnon began on obscure alt-right pro-Trump message boards and then slowly leaked out across Facebook and Twitter and then across alt-right mass media at large, with the outrage around this child sex ring spreading, gobbling up any number of fringe conspiracy theorists along the way. In the mid-1800s, a skeptical man visiting the Cardiff giant wrote of a quote, Joy in believing, increased by the peculiarly American superstition that the correctness of a belief is decided by the number of people who can be induced to adopt it. A recent poll from Yahoo News found that on average, 37% of Trump supporters believed at least part of the QAnon theory. As these stories are becoming more and more normalized, more and more believers are actually reaching positions in our government, using the springboard of the QAnon community to launch vicious far-right campaigns. As he's done in the past, Trump recently dodged the question of QAnon fantastically at a town hall hosted by Savannah Guthrie. In a shocking moment, he refused to say whether or not the conspiracy is true. Let me ask you about QAnon. It is this theory that uh, Democrats are a satanic pedophile ring and that you are the savior of that. Now, can you just once and for all state that that is completely not true? So and disavow QAnon in its entirety? I know nothing about QAnon. I just told I you. I know very little. You told me, but what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact. I hate to say that. I know nothing about it. I do know they are very much against uh, pedophilia. They fight it very hard. But I know nothing they about it. They believe it, it is if a you'd satanic like me to run by the deep state. The subject, I'll tell you what I do know about. I know about Antifa, and I know about the radical left, and I know how violent they are and how vicious they are, and I know how they're burning down cities run by Democrats, not run Republican by Republicans. Republican Senator Ben Sass said, quote, QAnon is nuts, and real leaders call conspiracy theories conspiracy theories. He may be Why right. not just say it's crazy and not true? He may be right. I just don't know about QAnon. You do know. I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. In the most serious case, as laid out by Jason Stanley in How Fascism Works, conspiracies and disinformation are vital pillars of fascist tactics. It's important to see this thing called fascism, this word we hear repeated so often, as a process rather than a destination. Like the many moral panics and conspiracy theories we've learned about over the last couple years, fascist ideology purposefully spreads panics about women and children using sensationalized sexual crimes and gore. They help create panics about any number of our societal or cultural others. They create a world in which the them is coming for the us, coming to destroy American traditions, coming to destroy the status quo nuclear family. At the same time, the process purposefully erodes trust in standing institutions. It refutes science, academic research, and professional reporting as the evil liberal propaganda of coastal elites. All the wild conspiracy theories we seem to be dealing with almost daily 
don't exist independently of each other. Instead, they grow gnarled together into a new mythology propped up by those in power, most often an authoritarian leader who unrepentantly lies and denies until it becomes normalized, something that many of us sigh at, but something that's also eating away slowly at our mass-shared reality. Say we want to talk about how to move through a pandemic. If I think that it's all a democratic hoax aimed at dethroning the anti-satanic spiritual superhero of our generation, and you don't, it makes reason debate impossible. And it can make relationships impossible, too. In the age of the internet, where anyone can be a journalist, where anyone can say anything is true and get retweeted six times faster, the million-dollar question is how do we combat disinformation beyond just the crackdowns we're seeing on social media sites? We've talked often about confirmation bias, and studies continue to show that when faced with ambiguous evidence, groups are more likely to interpret the information to support their already held beliefs. But things ramp up even more so with this research around belief polarization that has shown that with issues that elicit emotion, people are more likely to increase the strength of their own views when presented with counter evidence than when presented with evidence that supports their views. Let me say that in a different way. Imagine you decide to respond to your QAnon uncle's Facebook post with a well-researched paper that refutes whatever his claim of the day is. That actually makes him more likely to strengthen his belief in the conspiracy theory, even more so than if you just agreed with him. Perhaps, as I have cleverly written here, the oft-repeated Trump campaign line is more appropriate inverted. Facts don't care about your feelings, sure, but also, feelings don't care about your facts. But isn't that kind of the thing? Disinformation asks us to feel the truth, while facts ask us not to feel anything at all. I know that when I'm presented with evidence that contradicts a deeply held belief of my own, it hits me viscerally, and it takes great effort not to do the same thing, to write it off as fake news, part of some kind of conspiracy against me. Maybe this kind of self-strong-arming is just as hard for you, too. As author Kevin Young writes in Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and Fake News, quote, What if truth is not an absolute or relative, but a skill, a muscle like memory, that collectively we have neglected so much that we've grown measurably weaker at using it? Like fascism, isn't truth a process and not a destination? But we act as if we've already found it, or at least that we'll find it soon, indisputably, that we'll look through that unimaginable telescope and know. This episode comes out the night before the 2020 presidential election that will show us which reality will guide our ongoing response to the pandemic and the economy and the growing demand for racial justice, as well as what will become of our democracy at large. 
Like the Civil War, the last five years have pitted us against family members and friends, have pitted two deeply conflicting realities against each other with no fundamental foundational facts to fall back on, no real way to try and talk it through. This thing we call truth is what stabilizes us, what we hold on to, what keeps us psychologically safe. My truth, your truth, our truth, the truth has always been an abstract thing to move toward, a kind of ultimate goal to live inside of. We want the truth so bad, all of us. It's something we all have in common, and that's why all this nonsense is happening, and it's also why we're trying so hard to combat it. Truth is a lucrative weapon. It's an exploitive, powerful abstraction that gnaws at the most human of our qualities, our consciousness, until we can be molded by our desire to just make sense of it all. I've always wanted to find the truth, and as I've admitted, I've believed all kinds of wild theories in hopes that I had finally found it. Maybe you've done things like that, too. Maybe we seek the truth so doggedly, in so many different ways, because if we could just agree on the fundamental, foundational things, there could be a grander kind of hope for us all, an agreement that America is a process, not a destination, something fixed in the sky that we move toward. We may never get there, not in our lifetime, but it feels good to believe, doesn't it? In a lush paradise, hanging like a long hidden truth in the sky. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we're going to enter that wild, wonderful world of some of America's most prolific flimflam artists of today. That's right, we're talking televangelists. And next week, make sure you don't miss our amazing interviews with Jason Stanley, who wrote the book How Fascism Works, and Kevin Young, who wrote Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and Fake News. We're going to talk about flimflam and fascism and how they all relate to each other in our modern America. The nonprofit we'd like to highlight today is called First Draft, and their mission is to protect communities from harmful misinformation. They work to empower society with the knowledge, understanding, and tools needed to outsmart false and misleading information. To donate, head to firstdraftnews.org or find their link in our bio. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Camo Studios, co-researched and written by Riley Smith, and co-produced and edited by Miranda Zickler. With voice acting by Will Rogers, this week directed by Kristen Rogers Anderson. Make sure you check out their podcast, Guide to the Unknown. And special thanks to our agency, Lasso Audio, for all of the amazing things that they continue to do for our show. If you love American Hysteria, please consider becoming a patron of our show. You'll get extra content every month, episodes, interviews, videos. You'll also be in the know about a lot of things that other people don't know about. And you might even be able to help influence future episodes. You can find the link to our Patreon in our show notes. 
Please also follow us on social media and leave us a review if you get a chance. It really helps us out. We also have some very cool merch up on AmericanHysteria.com, so make sure you check that out, too. So thanks, as always, for listening. And I'm sending love to you and my future self, because I don't know what things are going to be like after this episode comes out. Isn't that a weird thing? Have a great week. 